The Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, Episode 96. At over 1.9 million miles, India has the world's largest road network. Hey, no one said they were all drivable. Hello, travel nerds, and welcome to the Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, the show that teaches you how to travel more while spending less. I'm your host, Travis Sherry, and whether this is your first time listening or whether you were with us when we never imagined that we'd be nearing 100 podcasts, I want to say thank you for joining us today, for making us the number one rated travel podcast on iTunes, and for all the support over the last year and a half. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Today's episode is part two of my interview with Charlie Grosso. And if you missed part one, in part one, we discuss how Charlie was able to take her many passions, of which she has tons, and turn them into a career. How she was able to take that career that is usually very location dependent, being an art gallery director and make it a location-independent lifestyle, which then allowed her to travel all over the world and have tons of crazy adventures. So she discusses some of her most crazy adventures, including the Mongol Rally, where she drove a car all the way across Europe and then all the way across Mongolia all by herself. So if you haven't given that a listen yet, I urge you, go check that out. You can get it at extrapackofpeanuts.com slash pods where all our episodes are housed. You can also get that on iTunes or Stitcher or however you listen to our podcast. In part two today, we're going to continue to talk with Charlie about some of her craziest adventures, including the rickshaw run, a zany adventure that she took through India and why that was even harder than the Mongol rally. She's also going to tell us about some of her travel secrets, some of her tricks and tips that she's learned for being able to travel more and spend less. Also talk about a harrowing travel experience that she had, but why that actually made her stronger and why it made her want to travel even more and how she took that experience and actually built on that and went back to the place that happened and continued to do what she wanted to do and finish the project she was working on. And Charlie is also going to bring us some expert advice on how to rent out your place on Airbnb. Charlie has an apartment in New York City as a home base, but when she's traveling, she rents out an Airbnb. So she's going to talk about how this allows her to afford to travel and how she's able to have this home base and all her stuff in New York City so that when she wants to come home, she can be there in her apartment in New York City. But when she's away, she's able to pay the mortgage and cover the rent through renting her place out to strangers on Airbnb. She's going to share the tips and tricks that she's learned of three years of doing this because a lot of people have talked to me about wanting to make money while they're on the road or being able to pay their mortgage or their rent and they don't know how to do it. I've never rented my place on Airbnb. I've only been someone who stayed as a guest at an Airbnb place, but Charlie's going to give us all the secrets for that and tell you how you can be successful in renting your place out 
on Airbnb as well. So lots of great stuff coming from Charlie. So let's dive right into part two of my interview with Charlie Grosso. All right, let's talk about the rickshaw run because that's interesting that you said it was harder than the Mongol rally. You're one of the few people I know who have done both. And so you can have this comparison. So the rickshaw run, as you mentioned, you're, you're riding a rickshaw. If anyone's been to India or Southeast Asia, you know, they're little motorized cabs, but they're open air for the most part. If you don't know what a rickshaw is, look it up. You'll laugh that someone took this all the way across India, that multiple teams took this all the way across India. The rickshaw race. I mean, you're in India. So I've been to India once and it was the, I always tell people it was the hardest traveling I've done so far. The only time I had culture shock, the only time I've really felt kind of not nervous because I wasn't scared or anything, but just way out of my element. And that's because I got dropped in Mumbai and I just had never been to India before. And Mumbai itself is kind of an even different from the rest of India. So the rickshaw run, tell us a little bit about that. How long did it take you and about that experience? Because you just said that it was harder than Mongol rally. So why was it harder? You know, was it, did you guys almost give up? Give us the nitty gritty here. So the rickshaw run is trans India. We went from one end of India to the other, clocking in at 3,500 kilometers altogether. It's about two weeks. It was harder because India is harder. I felt like we have more miserable days than on the rickshaw run than we did than I did on the Mongol rally. And that had to do with the fact that some of the things I really enjoy about the Mongol rally does not exist on the rickshaw run. I enjoy the vast expanse of nothingness, of just wilderness and space and camping for days on end. Like you don't do that in India. That doesn't really exist in India. Yeah, if people haven't realized, there's what, 1.5 billion people or 1.3 billion people in India. Yeah, so there's no camping, there's no wilderness, there's no nothingness. Mechanically, is harder. The rickshaw is a simple vehicle, but it's not a fun vehicle. It's not an easy vehicle to drive. There's a lot of traffic, a lot of traffic nonstop. The, the thing isn't safe. The thing isn't meant to be driven like outside of the city. It's an inner city transportation device. But you drive it, and you drive it across really long distance. It's prone to tip over. It doesn't go very fast at all. I, I would imagine you'd feel like you're not getting anywhere. Even if you do have this road that's halfway decent, and, oh, now we can just take off. Well, you're not really taking off anywhere. No, and the and, and it defies your expectation every time. From the start, we're like, oh, I think we just need to drive like 250K a day, plus minus, like we'll be okay. There were very few days in which we hit our goal of 250 kilometers a day without incidents or just hit it and be okay. Some mornings go gray and then the afternoon just falls apart. And, you know, you never know. And so it, it results in a lot of really long driving days. It's it's physically and mentally exhausting. It's it's an endurance thing. And that's interesting because you said the Mongol rally was six weeks, more or less, and the rickshaw run was two weeks. But did the rickshaw run seem longer then? Because I've had experiences that I've only been somewhere, you know, X amount of weeks, but in your head, in your memory, you feel like it's a whole chunk of your life, whereas stuff you've done for three years, you're like, ah, oh, it was just a little blip. You know, Travis, I have, I'm starting to have this feeling where I feel like I'm compressing, I'm living multiple lives simultaneously. 
And I'm also compressing lifetime down into like really, really condensed pockets. The rickshaw run was like one life. And then after that, I went to Nepal and did a 20 day trek. And that was like another life. And all of them are just, they're lifetimes ago in some ways, but they're also just like they were yesterday at the same time. You know, that, that condensed sense of time and space and experience just because you pack so much in. I think that's it. I think it's that you pack so many new experiences into one that it doesn't matter the time. It's just the experiences are so vivid and so strong that, yeah, the the actual amount of time doesn't really do it justice. So we asked about, you know, would you do the Mongol rally again? And basically you came to the conclusion that, yeah, when you're talking about it, you want to do it, but you change it. Rickshaw run. (laughs) Would you do the rickshaw run again? Oh, that's a tough one. I don't know. I would do something else. But here's the other thing too, though. Like I've spent four months in India and India has never, ever charmed me. I don't hate it. I don't love it. I want to love it, but I don't. That's so great that you say that because so many people I talk to, like I fell in love with India. I love the country. I love this. I don't feel that way. I know I have not been there four months. We were only there three weeks, three and a half weeks. And there are parts of India that I loved and I would go back but I don't feel that magicness, magicalness, magicness, whatever the word is, around India that so many other people do. I have that feeling about most of Southeast Asia, but I don't feel that about India. So I'm glad that you kind of brought that up as well. I don't. I I mean, Nepal, however, you know, I did a, I did a 20-day trek in Nepal after. I would ha- I'd be happy to go back to Nepal any day of the week. Like, I would go back to Nepal. I would go back to a ton of other places I've been. But India, it's, I don't know, everybody loves it. Like you said, they're like, oh my God, it was so mystical and spiritual and whatever it is that they want to describe it as. I'm like, "Eh, yeah, I don't hate you. I just not sure that I want to experience you that soon yet again. Yeah. And that brings up a point. I I remember my buddy went to Argentina for his honeymoon. He was, I helped him book the tickets. He was very excited. And he actually emailed me about three days in and said, it's really weird, but everyone loves Cordoba and I hate it. Is this wrong? Like that was basically the the whole email, right? And I was like, okay, well, he's three days into his honeymoon. He doesn't like it. I helped him book it. I told him to go there. But you know what? I The response I gave him and I kind of, we haven't really touched on this in the podcast much, but I think it's worth hearing is that that's what makes travel so cool when you get to a place that you really love is that you won't love every place. There have been places that I've gone to, like Penang, Malaysia, I thought, and, and India. I Both of these I heard such great things about. And I went and I thought, okay, like I, if someone asked me to go back or if there's a reason to go back, I would go back. I didn't hate it, but I didn't love it. And it didn't resonate with me the way that I did. And I felt awkward after that until I realized there's a lot of other places that I love so much. And without having those kind of... I don't know, baseline travel experiences, could we call them? You can't have that love of travel in other places because if everything was great, then nothing would really stick out in your mind. I think it's unrealistic for us to love every place we go, right? That's like saying that you would feel that je ne sais quoi with every every boyfriend you ever had or every man you go out on a date with. That just doesn't happen. As, As amazing as it would be if that did happen. You do have those sublime experiences and those ones that you really connect with. 
be it whatever, you know, alignment of stars of who you are, your happenstance and, and everything that happens to make that place magical, you can't control it. You can't predict it. And I think that's part of the fun of it. But once you've had it, then you know what that feels like. If it's not there, it's just not there. You can't force it. Right. I think that's so well said. I, I know people have emailed me before. And, and like I said, my best friend emailed me that. And I it got me to thinking. And it travel doesn't have to always give you that feeling of like, this is the best thing ever. And I think people don't realize that. And you know, for people who don't get to travel a lot, who only have two weeks, that stinks because, you know, if you go somewhere and you don't really love it, well, that's kind of the reason why I tell people to travel more because you don't know where you're going to be. And and not everyone can. I understand that. But it's the idea of making travel a priority because you don't know when you're going to love something and you don't know when something is going to draw you back and you don't know when you're going to have a week where you're just like, eh, this was okay. But, you know, honestly, there's been weeks where I've had on the road that I thought, I'd rather be at home. And not because I'm homesick, but just because a week at home, even if it was kind of normal, would have been better than whatever I just had. But that happens. It's it's definitely that making travel a priority. But but to break it down even farther, to explore the edges of who we are and what we are a priority. Travel is a great mechanism that help us do that. But I think ultimately that's what happens. We get to go to the edge of our comfort zone of who we are our assumptions, our expectations, what we know, what we don't know. And living on that edge makes us feel incredibly alive. And it's that feeling that I think we chase time after time, country after country. And I would love to be able to know how to do it, you know, always. Not always facilitated by a flight and, you know, long absence. But such as is, I'm, I'm very okay with with a with a mechanism in which it takes to get me there. Right. And taking as it comes and realizing when it does happen, when you have those feelings, to just bask in that because it's not all the time. And it can happen at home. It can happen on the road. It can happen when you're on the Mongol rally, maybe less so when you're on the rickshaw run. Yeah, there's plenty of times. And, and again, it's more the experiences and the people than it is the actual place you're in. And everyone who comes on the podcast kind of says that. It's the people I meet. It's the experience I have in that country that I didn't expect to have. It's not going to the Eiffel Tower, which is cool, but it's finding the little baguette shop and having a conversation and with the guy and really making that connection that makes it so special. Yeah. And a willing, the willingness to put ourselves in that place, right. To, to live on our edge and to allow for those experiences to unfold. Right. Cause when we're at home, it's so controlled. Like I have an appointment at this time. I need to go here and do this and I need to meet up with so-and-so and we're going to go to our favorite bar and all of it is great. I think we stifle serendipity a little bit. I think we stifle, possibilities because home has so much expectations that comes with it. Yep. And I think that's why I love traveling is that when you're on the road, you don't know what to expect. Even if you're going to the spot, even if you're going, I'll be going to Chiang Mai. I've been there twice. Okay. I I know that there's going to be some restaurants there that I've been to. I know there's going to be some places I've stayed, but I don't know all the little things that are going to happen day to day. And that's what makes it exciting. So... 
one of the things that we have to touch on yes. is the fact that you use Airbnb. I think just Airbnb. Do you use other services as well, or is it just strictly Airbnb? Um, my apartment is actually listed on both Wimdu and Airbnb. Okay. So Wimdu and Airbnb. And this is an incredible resource for anyone who does want to travel more and might not have the finances to just get up and go and leave their house and pay a mortgage or pay a rent at an apartment and also travel. And so I'm super excited to ask you about that. But you use Airbnb and Wimdu as a host. So you will rent out your place and then you go away and and travel and, and do where you're traveling, wherever you are. How long have you been doing it? Why do you do it? I, I just have a lot of questions. Let's start with how long you've been doing it and why people why people might want to take advantage of this. Um, I've been doing it since 2012. Before that, I've had roommates. I've had temporary roommates. I have friends who needed a place to stay while I'm gone. You know, I've kind of subletted or not even subletted, but, you know, just rented out to a friend or whatever. You know, I was prepping for the Mongo Rally and I knew I was going to be gone for four solid months. I was like, well, I'm just going to try this out because I can't rent my place out to a friend for the amount I need to cover my cost. But I could totally run into a stranger <laughs> at market value. So I did that. And the first year in 2012, I think I had three different renters for the four months duration. I kind of wanted a longer renter to so that there's less things to manage and so on and so forth. There, There is a management aspect of it that you just need to work out somehow, have a friend, have a neighbor, have your brothers or your sisters that needs to kind of look after the place for you. That does need to happen. Without it, I couldn't do it. So my apartment is a one bedroom, a living room, and then there's this little tiny eight by 10 room. So the first year I cleaned out my apartment, basically. I moved everything that was personal, that was important to me, that was valuable, and I moved it into the eight by 10 room and I locked it up. So everything that was left was like beds, desks, dining room tables, like furnitures. There was nothing personal in it. And what I found was that I came home to the house entirely rearranged. I was actually kind of mad. I'm like, why do you rearrange somebody else's house? That just seems kind of rude. So my house was completely rearranged and I was like, I don't like this. The second time I took off in 2013, again, for a five months period, this time to Africa and Latin America, where I had this robbery homicide incident by armed Ugandan rebels, but that's a different story. I decided to just leave everything. I didn't clean out my dresser. I put locks on my closets. So everything that was valuable, personal, like my clothes, my cameras that I didn't take with me, those are all locked in a closet. I left one closet for them to hang clothes up in if they wanted to. But like my dressers, I... There are my clothes in there. There's underwear in there, socks. I left it. Right. It's like it's someone's home. Absolutely. I mean, you come in and you imagine that, okay, someone lives here before me and is going to be in here after me. Yeah. You know, I, I really made sure that it felt like it was my house and not like this weird corporate rental, perhaps, that somebody thought the year before. Nobody moved my furniture. I came home pretty much to the house as is with like little odd things here and there, you know, and little things go missing like dish towels and Tupperwares and a glass gets broken. This thing gets, I mean, those are just part of it and you live with that. Right. For five months. I mean, that, that would happen if you were at home possibly. Exactly. You know, but all in all was major improvement from the year before. 
So I've been doing it nonstop for three years. And it offsets my cost in New York City when I'm not here. So you're able to charge enough on Airbnb that when you're not there, it will completely cover your your rental costs. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah, very cool. Now, have you, if you don't mind me asking, have you been able to make money off of it actually, or is it just kind, or do you set your price just so it'll cover the rental? It depends on the month. It depends on the month and how the rental goes down. There are months that like I come out on top, and then there are months that I'm kind of just even. I would say a conservative sum would be that I'm even through and through. But that's still pretty cool for not having to pay for a storage unit. Yeah, you don't have to pay for a storage unit. You also have somewhere to come home to, which has been Heather and I's biggest struggle is that when we come home, we don't have a home. Like we come home to physically to Philadelphia, but we have our place rented out long term. Yeah. And yearly, actually. So, you know, very long. So we have nowhere to be. And we've always played around with this idea of, well, we want to have our own place, even if it's not a huge, it doesn't have to be a huge home, just a place that when we come home, we can be in, it can be our own space. How do we make that work? Obviously, people are making it work with Airbnb, you being one of them. What kind of other things should people be aware of? Because it sounds great, you know, but how do you set your pricing and and how do you make sure that things are looked after? Like you said, you have a friend who comes and does it. What are some advice some tips or advice that you could give people where they're like, all right, this is cool. I'm going to give it a try. So right now my neighbor takes care of it for me. She's next door to me and she's, she's really cute. She has kind of adopted me as a daughter and comes to think of my apartment as her apartment. Cause that's how she refers to it. She's like, no, no, this is my apartment. I'm like, okay, perfect. You know, that's perfect. I, I, she cleans it for me in between. I make sure I take care of her. I pay her for it. And, and I grease my super. This is New York city. I grease my super. Like, as long as my super is happy, we're good. You know, a lot of coffee money gets kind of taken care of. So that's one thing for those of you who live in New York City. And be friendly and with those people who need to take care of your place for you. What do you do for pricing? Would you suggest someone just look at Airbnb in their area and kind of find the market value? Do, have you found that if you make yours priced higher, that you get tenants in there that you you know, that would be more savory or what has been your thinking with that? I looked very briefly on Airbnb once on like what other things were going for in my neighborhood. I mean, they were like dodgy, like somebody's one bedroom for rent for like $25, but it looks like some kids' dorm room, you know? I was like, I wouldn't live here for $25. Know what you're worth, right? I mean, how I did my math, honestly, was that I figured out what my rent is, what my what my monthly cost for the apartment is, and I said, okay, how many, what would be a reasonable average of numbers of days I would need to rent for in order for it to just cover my costs? Divide that, and then and we start there. You know, there's there's a weekly discount, there's a monthly discount, and you kind of just work from there. I don't know that I'm necessarily competitively priced. Because I haven't done enough surveys, but I will say that the way I've rented my apartment out and how many it sleeps and what it offers, it's competitively priced against hotels in New York City. Gotcha. So someone's getting an apartment as opposed to a a hotel. Have you had any issues? Because I know for me, I I get the question from people who are looking to rent out Airbnb places, and I can never answer because I haven't rented out my place. But the big issues that a lot of people bring to me are, 
What should I do with all my stuff? Which you've kind of already touched on, but if you want to touch on that a little bit more, you know, what you would recommend. And then, you know, the, the other question is like, well, you know, what if an issue comes up? And and there's a v- variety of issues that could come up, but have you had any major issues where you thought, all right, this isn't worth it? I, I obviously not yet because you continue to do it, but how have you made sure maybe not to have them or have you just gotten lucky? Um, I definitely have gotten lucky. I don't know. I don't know how to prevent major issues. And I worry about that sometimes, especially given the fact that I'm gone for so long and a lot of times in really remote places without internet access, which is the only way anybody can get hold of me once I'm on the road. Right. And until it until it happens, yeah, you can take a few safeguards, but there's no point not doing something if that's your main hang up of what if a major thing happens. And my mom my mom lives in Taipei and she has a three bedroom apartment and she's Airbnb her apartment too. Nice. It's a family thing now. <laughs> Apparently, yes. So she she Airbnbs the other two bedrooms in her house and she gets great traffic. You know, and I actually looked at like the cost of how much it it is to like rent various things and I actually did like market research for her and I didn't do it for me. You know, and in the beginning, when my mom was learned that I was Airbnb in my apartment, she asked me things like, well, don't you care that they're sleeping in your bed? And it's more a psychological thing. Like, but what about your stuff? And what about somebody else being in your apartment? At this point, we're already location independent. So I think we kind of distance ourselves from the idea of possession to some degree. Well, and I think, too, if we have I've been in Airbnb places all over the world as a renter. If you've done that, you kind of know, I mean, you're not always going to get the best people renting, but you kind of know how it works and you treat someone else's home as yours. And, you know, the idea is that someone else will treat treat yours the same way. And I think that, that you, there is an element of trust, but Airbnb has done a good job in, in providing as many safeguards as possible. And so... Absolutely. And I think you hear about horror stories more than you hear about good stories, right? Always. Of course. Would I be sad if like my favorite mug gets broken? Absolutely. I've had it since I was 18. Like little things like that, sure. But again, like things are just things. Like are they really going to like steal my bed? Well, I hope not. But if they do, I have renter's insurance. I have... I've picked up more insurance since since I started Airbnb on a regular basis. There is that. Basically, if it, if it comes down to, well, I can afford to travel if I rent out my place at home, or I can't afford to travel, but I keep my place at home. Well, that kind of puts the mug in perspective, right? Yeah. Are we really that distrustful of other people? Is it really not okay that they sleep in our beds for a few nights? You know, are they really going to steal my books? All things can be replaced. So I've asked some of the questions that I had. I think you've done a great overview, Charlie, of hosting, being a host with Airbnb or any of those apartment rounds. But if you guys do have questions, of course, you can drop them in the comments because there might be other things that you've been worrying about or you've been wanting to do this, but you, you're you not sure and you want to know an answer to this. I'll make sure I get them over to Charlie if that's the case. So you can obviously drop those in the comments of the show notes. I got to ask you too, what are some of your best tips for traveling more and spending less? Because that's a tagline here. Travel more, spend less. And I know that you do a lot of traveling. So what are some of the ways when you are traveling that you save money, that you cut corners, that you found, hey, this gives me either a better experience or the same experience, but I'm not paying top dollar? Well, this summer, I lived in Hanoi for two months. Um, I cooked a lot. I ate out. I would eat out like one or two meals a day, but not a lot. 
a lot of street food because I like it because Hanoi is very much so a street food culture. So I did that and also it suited the fact that I was alone. Like going to a restaurant didn't make sense. Finding different ways to eat is definitely a way to cut, you know, your overall budget. Moving less frequently. Your lodging and transportation are going to be the highest cost in no matter what country you're in. So the faster you move, the more expensive it gets. Right. And we just talked about accommodations. And I'm the guy who you probably don't like because I'm always emailing Airbnb hosts saying, I'm going to be here for 10 days. Can you give me a much better deal than before? And a lot of times... They will. They agree because they don't want three, one day off, three, one day off. You know, they're willing to work with you. I will say, though, I do a whole lot more laundry now (laughs) when I do Airbnb. That's funny. That's funny. So yeah, (laughs) traveling slow. And and like you said, watching the food costs and and eating in, all of that kind of ties into traveling. So we've we've talked about that um, throughout the show. So I think... And and where you eat, you know, is it local? Is it kind of touristy? Is it like, what is the establishment? What is it meant for? And, you know, the locals pay so much less than you. Right. Are you getting a burrito in Chiang Mai, which I've done and it was awful and expensive, you know? But you know what? Sometimes you just want a pancake. Sometimes like you just want pancakes or a burger. Like you've been on the road for six months. You want something you know. It depends. That is one thing I will never begrudge anyone. Even if you go to Chiang Mai and get a burrito, just don't go to the place that I went to. I think it was called Moe's. I can't remember. But regardless, <laughs> maybe I'm, maybe that's because that's around here. But regardless, yeah, if you want it, go for it. We've had plenty of times where we've done that. We've thought we've been on the road. We want some quote unquote comfort food or Western food. So it is what it is. One last thing that I have to ask you again before you go, because you kind of threw it in there and then you skipped over and you said, that's a whole nother story. I always ask people about their travel mishaps or mistakes. You've given us some already with the rickshaw race and the Mongol rally and things, but this whole, what do you say? You were trapped by Ugandan border guards? Um, I was on a bus going from U- Rwanda to Uganda and the bus was hijacked by rebels, armed rebels mugged the entire bus man was shot dead that's that's probably my biggest travel mishap wow i can't even imagine how did that work out you just gave them what you wanted and hope for the best you know armed men's in the middle of the night they robbed the entire bus and and they took everything they didn't want my papers which was a good thing so i had my passports i wasn't scared until they kicked us off of the bus and wanted us face down side of the road because up until then was just a robbery. But now you're in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the night, you're face down on the side of the road. And this is Africa. One or two things is going to happen to me next. They're going to murder us or they're going to rape us. That was when I was scared. Thank God they just took the bus and took off. Wow. How did you feel after that? Because a situation like that, which doesn't happen to many people, how did that change your perspective on travel then? Did it make you kind of hesitant to travel? Were you maybe thinking, okay, um, I've seen this bad thing happen, but I want to see the good parts of travel, like the Mongol rally and things like that. What was your perspective on it? So I've been working on a, I've been working on a project, a photo documentary project called Walk the Dog, W-O-K. It's a photo documentary of food markets around the world. I've covered 120 cities, 42 countries on five continents. It's this epic project that I've been working on for over 10 years. 
2013 was a last stint. I was going to finish it. I was going to hit my goal and I was going to finish it. I had just basically started that leg of the trip into Africa when this whole thing happened. So my cameras are gone. Everything was gone. And like I lost every piece of hardware I had. After the rebels took off, we're trying to walk back to the to the main road and get help and police and so on and so forth. I was like, okay, what am I going to do now? I rented my places out. I Airbnb my apartment out. I don't have a home to go back to. <laughs> what am I going to do for the rest of the summer? I could go back to Taipei and hang out with my mom for the summer. I'm sure she would love that. I could, I don't know, go find some other city and hold up there for a while. But I really had my heart set on finishing this epic 10-year project. It was 10 years in the making and I wanted to finish it. I was like, okay, then we start again. We need to pick up hardware. We need to buy cameras. We need to buy computers. We're insured, so that's fine. We need to get back on the road. This internal dialogue took no more than five minutes in my head of what I wanted to do. I had options, but the only option I really wanted was to get back on the road and finish what I started. So I sorted out all the logistics that I could because I needed a way for a police report in Uganda. So I waited for my police report. I flew back to New York City for a week. I filed insurance claims, spent money like a mad woman while waiting for my insurance claim to come through, bought everything I needed, and I went back out onto the road, uh, straight back into Africa. And I also knew that if I didn't go, if I didn't just turn it back around and go, that fear of what happened would just it would percolate and it would permeate and it would grow to be much bigger than something than it is. But if I just headed back out, like what's going to be all right. Wow. I think you're exactly right with that. You had to kind of just stamp it out in your head and say, I'm going to do it. It's not going to stop me. And that's a pretty cool project. What, what else do you have in the pipeline that people should be looking out for? Is that, is that out now that, um, it's, it's in, (laughs) I'm putting the finishing touches on it. It's essentially a coffee table book, Walk the Dog. And you can see images of it on my website at charliegrosso.com. And I'm writing a travel memoir, travel memoir of these last six years of mishaps and adventures and why I took to the road and what I've learned from it and and so on and so forth. Well, we're here to hold you accountable. Are you going to give us a date of when that's going to be out for the whole world to know or is it, or a tentative date? I'm hoping tentatively that I'll be out by the end of next year. I'd like to finish the first draft of the manuscript by the end of the year. I don't know if that's going to happen. I'm like a third way through. I'm a third way through. But the writing slowed down a lot since I got back to New York because other duties requires other times. So you're going to give $100 to every listener. Did I hear that right? Was there <laughs> static there? $100 to every listener if you don't have it done by the end of 2015. That's awesome. Some really cool projects. Charlie already mentioned it. She has some fantastic photography on her site. So if you want to find out more about that, you can go to her website. And Charlie, I'm going to say thanks so much for coming on the show, sharing your travel tales, all the insanely practical tips about Airbnb and location independence, and also the great stories about the Mongol rally and the rickshaw run. 
before I let you go, let's remind people, let's kind of tell them where they can find everything that you're doing because you wear all these hats. So where the, where's that one part of the funnel that they can go to to see everything that you're doing? The easiest website would be charliegrosso.com, C-H-A-R-L-I-E-G-R-O-S-S-O.com. Then you will see, you know, a splash page with a bunch of nouns and adjectives and most of the nouns and adjectives are clickable and it all kind of funnel you to different directions of various things that I do. Yeah. And I, when I first went there, I thought, where am I going? Like, what do I click on? You know, usually it's, I like it because it's not the standard, Hey, here's a navigation bar in the top. Here's where you go. I I just, yeah, your site's awesome. Thank you so much again for coming on. (laughs) Thanks for having me, Travis. It's been a pleasure. Guys, if you love what Charlie's doing, what she talked about today, as she mentioned, make sure to head over to her website, charliegrosso.com. Of course, we'll link up everything in the show notes. I'll link up your video for the Mongol Rally, Charlie, everything like that. You're going to be able to find that at extrapackofpeanuts.com slash Charlie. That's with an I-E. Also, don't forget, we're still rocking podcast gluttony. So every single weekday, Monday through Friday, we're putting a show out. I want your input on topics and guests because, Charlie, you were actually a recommendation from a mutual friend of ours. Yes. Yeah. So, Sherry Ott, thank you. I'm so happy that you gave me a recommendation of having Charlie on the show. Guys, I want to hear who your recommendations are. Who do you want to have on? What topics do you want us to cover? Let us know. You can email me, trav at extrapackofpeanuts.com. If you're social media savvy, tweet us at Peanuts. Of course, you know, we always love iTunes reviews. Those have been coming in since I've been asking you to post them. So I really appreciate it, guys. Feel free to send us some love that way. Thanks for joining us, Charlie. Again, thank you so much for coming on. It's my pleasure. And everyone, thanks for the support. Thanks for making us the number one rated travel podcast on iTunes. Until tomorrow, happy free travels. <laughs>